0: Good morning. Let's open our Bibles today to Philippians chapter two, Philippians chapter two, verse five, and um, just want to uh, do do a couple of things today. We are I'm going to preach from this passage, but before I do that, let me let me see if I can make my iPad work. There we go. Very good. Um, usually do better than that. Uh, I, I want to. We need to have a little church family meeting for just a few minutes. Uh, because I want to talk to you about where we are in a project that we started about two years ago. Uh, it was supposed to be a one-year project, about six months to take up some money and about six months to get some work done, then COVID happened. So um, some of you have, uh, have a vague memory of a, of a program we called Above and Beyond. Uh, many of you gave to that, and we thank you for your faithful contribution, and I just want to give you an update on where we are on that because it does involve some work that we want to see done on this particular room. And Above and Beyond, we had several projects that we wanted to accomplish. There was some work to be done at the church at Shepherd, some work to be done at our West Campus, some work on this facility in particular. There are two new uh, huge, by the way, $125,000 air conditioning units that are on top of this building that we had to replace a new parking lot across the street. Uh, we also wanted to pay off the debt on the West Campus, which was at that point $1.3 million. And by far the biggest project was we wanted to remodel the front of house, the, the stage area and everything you see up here uh, to make it more functional for the fact that we have two styles of worship And we're going to have two styles of worship. We're a multi-generational church. We're going to honor those who uh, have served well and who uh, love a blended service. And we're going to have a contemporary service. And so that's who we are. But we do need some improvements to this stage. It was built in 2005, opened on Easter Sunday, 2005. We still call this the new worship center. It's the 16-year-old new worship center. Uh, But uh, so, you know, over 16 years, wear and tear, that sort of thing. But let me give you an update on some financial aspects of this so that you're aware. You faithfully gave uh, about $2.7 million. The number is there on the screen, $2,775,806. Now, out of that, we have completed every one of those projects, including we took 10% of that as we proposed in the beginning. Uh, There's $277,580.60. In a designated account for future church plants. We, that was the missional aspect of this particular capital project. Plus the fact that we have paid off the indebtedness on the West Campus. By God's grace his, and his provision and your faithfulness, we are, we are totally out of debt at the West Campus. Everything we set out to do has been accomplished except the remodel of this, this particular room. And so uh, that's what I kind of want to report to you on today because it has been a little bit difficult. We put it on pause because of COVID-19. We didn't know exactly what was going to happen. We thought that was wise. Our long-range planning committee did, but they also think it's wise for us to move. You gave the money for this, and we want to move on it. Now, here's where we stand. We've spent about $1.4 million on the projects that I talked about uh, before. So that leaves us with about $1.3 million uh, left on this. Now, we've worked hard on this. Uh, our staff, our music staff, especially both David Sherler, our blended worship pastor, and Randy Wood, our contemporary worship pastor. And we have to have something that functions for both services. And I w- I'm really excited about what I'm about to show you. I want to show you a couple of renderings. And this is what the platform would look like um, during a blended service. You can see the choirs there. The main feature of this is twofold. First of all, the main feature is what you see there depicted with the Easter artwork. That is an LED wall. That Those images could change in a heartbeat. It's not like permanently painted up there. Uh, that's an LED wall. And for example, what I'm about to do on this board could be easily put up on that wall behind me, and it would look a lot nicer than uh, what I'll draw on this board. Uh, but we could use that in both worship services also the platform will be expanded and there's a reason for that our orchestra and the blended service has outgrown the orchestra pit We have to change over really quick from blended service to contemporary service. And so we want to expand and flatten out the platform, uh, take in a little bit of these steps. We don't use them for much of anything except decor and uh, really expand this area to improve our worship. Secondly, we want to change out the carpet in the room, do some painting in the room, modernize, improve it. Just bring it up to date and uh, sort of expanding the scope of this. We need to carpet the atrium area. The sun comes through, bleaches out that blue carpet. There's some stains out there. It's just time for that. Uh, and uh, so that's what we're looking at as far as this particular project. Now, here's where we stand on the money. To do all the work that we'd like to do is $1.9 million. We have about 1.3. That leaves us with a need for about $583,000. And so here's what I'm asking you to do. Please continue to support the budget like you've done. But if God moves on your heart to give again to above and beyond, like many of you already have, then that's where we stand on the project. We'd like to get all of this accomplished and get it done to advance our church into the future, to take care of this room for the next decade, and to make sure that we can uh, worship in both of those styles and everybody feel comfortable and enjoy our worship experiences. This also will enhance our Our visual image, for example, to the church at Shepherd and to our West Campus, what they see on the screen there will be enhanced by that LED screen. And we also know this, that many people are watching us who are not in the building. And sometimes they're not watching on a big screen. Sometimes they're watching on a screen about that size on their iPhone. And uh, we're learning that we have to design some of these things for that experience as well. Now, why the shortfall? Well, twofold. Number one. I don't know if you've tried to buy two before lately at Lowe's or Home Depot, but you know that construction costs have really gone up. And we don't see those coming down anytime soon, so we believe it's time to move on this project. Secondly, we expanded the scope just a little bit, and that is taking in a lot of the carpet and that sort of thing. We believe this is the best thing to do for our church, and I just present that to you. And if God moves it on your heart to give, uh, just do what the Lord tells you to do. And so you can designate that to above and beyond. Now... Let's take our Bibles and look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. What I should choose to do is preach one of the most important passages in the New Testament on the same day that I need to make a major announcement like that and try to shoehorn all this in together. So you remember about 20 years ago, there was sort of a Christian fad. And it was that we were all wearing these little bracelets that said WWJD. Anybody remember those? Anybody remember those? Somebody remember those? Okay, good. Some of us wore those. And the question was... WWJD, What Would Jesus Do? And that was actually based in a book that was written almost 100 years before we started wearing those bracelets. A guy named Charles Shelton had written a Christian fiction book, and it was called In His Steps. In the book, a pastor of a small church in a small town asked his congregation to ask that question, what would Jesus do anytime they made a decision? Anytime they made a relational decision, a financial decision, a moral decision, an ethical decision. Anytime they made a decision to ask the question, what would Jesus do? And the book is about how the church was changed, how the community was changed. Because this group of people decided to do what Jesus did. But that raises a question. And the question is this. If we're going to do what Jesus would do. Then we have to know what Jesus did because the only way to answer the question, what would Jesus do is for us to know what did Jesus do to start with? What did Jesus do when he came the first time? That's really what we need to dig into this morning because I don't know if you see this or not, but I see it. And that is in our culture, there are a lot of people who uh, propose to speak for Jesus there are people on opposite sides sometimes of issues, and they say they speak for Jesus. There are issues like the life issue. There are those who would say, I think Jesus would be on the side of the baby. By the way, I'm, I'm on, on that side. And there are people who say, oh no, Jesus would be on the side of the mom. He would be pro-choice or pro-abortion. Now, Jesus can't be both of those things. People will say, well, Jesus would be on this side of the justice issue or that side of the justice issue. There are a lot of people proposing to speak for Jesus. But the only way we know what Jesus would do and what Jesus would say is from an objective source and the only objective source about what Jesus did and what Jesus said is this book. We believe that all scripture is inspired by God. The words in red that Jesus said, those are super important and inspiring words. But the words that Paul wrote and John wrote and Mark wrote and Peter wrote and whoever wrote Hebrews wrote, they are equally inspired and authoritative. And so we want to look at scripture to know what would Jesus do and what Jesus did. And that's where we want to dig in at Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 today. In this passage of Scripture, what you're going to see is really one of the most significant passages of Scripture in the New Testament. We're going to look at about six verses of Scripture. And in those six verses of Scripture, I'm going to give you a framework in a little diagram for biblical Christianity. This is what biblical Christians believe. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're just checking this out, or if you're watching today and you say, I don't even know if I'm a Christian or not. This is what biblical Christians believe because this is what the Bible teaches. It's also, there's also a moral and ethical lesson here as well, and I'll get to that in a little bit. But look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Here's the passage Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, "...did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." for this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father now I believe that Paul wrote the book of Philippians, but Paul might not have been the original author of those words. Here's why. Many New Testament scholars believe that this was either an early creed that the church would recite, or it might have been an early worship song that they would sing. You can't see it in the English as much as you do in the Greek, but it it has a rhythm to it. It It has a pattern to it. And the pattern is shaped something like this. And I'm going to fill this in and show it to you in just a moment. But it begins with the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Biblical Christians believe Jesus Christ is God. Look back at the text and in verse verse 6 the Bible says that Jesus Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He existed in the form of God. As followers of Jesus, as biblical Christians, we believe that God is a trinity. That he is one God revealing himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That Jesus Christ is not only the Son of God, he is God the Son. He existed in the very form of God. When we see the word form, we usually think of outward form, what you see. But the word that is used in this passage is more of a word that refers to inward form. Uh, let me just sort of ex- uh, give you an example. The word here is morphe. There's another word that would be the word schema, and that means like outward appearance. Schema means that. Your schema would change over your lifetime, but the essence of who you are, your morphe, it never changes. Here's what I mean by that when a baby is conceived in the mother's womb, you were an embryo, and then you became an infant. And from an infant, you became a child, an adolescent, and you became a teenager, and then you became an adult, and then it was all downhill from there, right? You cha- your, for- your outward form, your schema changed, but that baby in its mother's womb has a unique genetic code that no one on planet Earth has ever had before that baby, and no one else will ever have after that. That's your DNA. And while your outward appearance changed, your form, your essence, your DNA was the same from the time you were an embryo to an infant, to a teenager, to an adult, to a 90-year-old man laying in a hospice bed waiting to draw his last breath and meet Jesus. Your DNA never changes. Here's what Paul is saying. Jesus was the DNA of God. He, in essence, is God. Here's the way that Jesus described it himself in John chapter 17, verse 5. He's praying, and he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before Genesis 1:1, Jesus ex- existed as God, with God, in the glory of God. But the Bible says he emptied himself. He poured himself out. What does that mean? It means that he gave up some of his divine prerogatives and he gave up some of his divine powers. Like this, for example. Powers may have been not the best word to use, but for example, God is everywhere, right? Is God everywhere? Yeah, no. Is God everywhere? Yes. There is no corner of the universe that God is not in at this moment. But Jesus gave up his omnipresence, his ability to be everywhere and confined himself to a human body. He became a man. Jesus emptied himself of his omnipresence and he confined himself to a human body. He humbled himself and became a man. And then Paul says he humbled himself farther. Not only did he become a man, but he didn't come as a king. He didn't come as the high priest. He came As a servant. Jesus said the son of man did not come to be served but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So what we see is Jesus emptying himself of some of his divine attributes. Though remaining God. He becomes fully human. He becomes fully human. He becomes fully uh, God. But he humbles himself even farther and he becomes a servant. And then Paul says he goes farther than that. He humbled himself even to the point of death. He experienced death. But then it gets worse. And Paul says, this is the bottom of the bottom. Look at verse 8. Paul says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Paul said that, and Paul wrote that word, his audience in the first century would have understood that crucifixion was the worst possible death that anyone could die. It was the most excruciating form of death anyone could experience. It was the most painful, it was the most humiliating form of death that anyone could experience. It was the most horrible death a person could die and the God of glory humbled himself to become a man, took on the form of a servant, died even the worst kind of death. And that's what we believe. But verse 9 changes things. And the arrow goes in the other direction. But God highly exalted him. He exalted him. First of all, by resurrecting him from the dead. Then by giving him dominion. Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me. Then by him ascending back to heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, where he intercedes for you right now. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that God highly exalted him and he gave him the name above every other name, the name of Jesus. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the last part of this passage brings it back to this summary. To the, say it out loud, to the glory, oh, can't spell, of God the Father. That's bad. Okay, there, there, there you go. Maybe that, that works. the glory of God the Father. This is what Jesus did for us. This is what we believe. We believe that Jesus is God. He came in human flesh. He died on a cross for our sins. But because of that, God highly exalted him. And the name of Jesus is the name that prayers are answered in. There's power in the name of Jesus. Prayers are answered in the name of Jesus. Salvation is in the name of Jesus. We believe in the name of Jesus around here, not just a nebulous God. And at his name, someday every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord, that he is sovereign, that he is king to the glory of God the Father. That is what biblical Christians believe. If you don't believe that, either one of two things is true. You need to be discipled and learn that. Or number two, you're not a Christian. Because that is what biblical Christians believe. That's what Paul writes to this church. You say, but Bob, what does that mean? Here's the good news. I'm going to unpack this for you. Here's the message that Paul is trying to communicate. Paul was speaking to the Philippian church, and here's what he's saying. First of all, if Jesus can choose humility, I can refuse selfishness. If Jesus can choose humility, I can refuse selfishness. So, Bob, where's that? This is actually a pattern of, Or an example based on a principle that Paul taught earlier in the passage. Now, I realize that two weeks is a long time. And for folks who don't remember what they had for breakfast this morning, asking you to remember what I preached two weeks ago uh, is is a pretty far stretch to go. So, what is the principle? Here's the principle. He says in verse 3, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. Jesus was not looking out for his own own interest when he emptied himself, took on human form, became a servant, died a cruel death on a cross. He was looking out for your interest, not for his own. If he had been selfish, we'd been doomed But in humility, he humbles himself. And if he can humble himself, then I can humble myself. If he can refuse to be selfish, then I can refuse to be selfish. The argument Paul is using is the argument of the greater to the lesser. Jesus is obviously greater than us. So if he can do this, then we can do this too. A few years ago, we took our very first ever trip to Disneyland. Callie was about two years old. And just like some of you who've gone to a Disney park, you know this, you spend the first time you ever go about half the time lost. You know, you're looking at the map, you realize it was turned upside down, and you're on the opposite side of the park from where you thought you were going. They're complicated, they're big, the whole deal. On that particular trip, we were looking for a restaurant. We had a reservation for dinner, which is important. You don't want to miss that. And we're looking on the map, and this guy walks up to me. And he said, uh, hey, um, you're, I notice you're looking at the map. You look like you're looking for something. Can I help you? I'm sure he had seen that look on people's faces about a million times. And I said, yeah, you sure can. And I looked down, and he's got the name tag on. And I don't remember his name, but it said he was from Houston, Texas. They put where you're from. I said, oh, a Texan. This is fantastic. We're from Wichita Falls trying to find our way. He was really super kind. I told him what we were looking for. He said, well, the good news is you're in the right part of the park. It's actually right around the corner. I'm going to walk you over there. I said, I'll oh, just point. He said, no, I'm going to walk you over there. I said, okay. So as we're walking, I said, what do you do here? He said, I am the vice president of Disneyland Park. I'm like, wow, they sent the vice president out to find me. This is pretty good, you know. But I said, you're the vice president of the park? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I'm noticing something. In his right hand, he had one of those uh, little gizmos that you use. It's got a handle on it, and it picks up trash. It kind of pinches a a cup or a can or whatever that's on the ground. You pick it up, and he's got one of those in his hand. And he actually picked up a piece of trash while we were walking along. And I said, you're the vice president of Disneyland, and you're picking up trash? And he said, actually it's just part of our company philosophy anytime one of us from management walks out he called it on stage that's what they call being out in in the park he said anytime we go out we carry one of these with us because if the vice president of the company can pick up trash then it's not belief beneath anybody else to pick up the trash it's the argument of the greater to the lesser and that's what Paul is teaching us in this passage of scripture, if Jesus can refuse to be selfish and humble himself, so can I. Second principle that Paul is teaching is this, obedience is the pathway to blessing. Obedience is the pathway to blessing. In verse nine, Paul writes, for this reason, for what reason? For this reason, God highly exalted him. What led, what was the reason that led to God highly exalting him? Well, it's in verse 8. In verse 8, here's what the Bible says. That he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. It was obedience that led to God exalting, the God, the Father, and Spirit exalting Jesus. It was obedience that resulted in that blessing. And the same thing is true for you and for me. There is a blessing in obedience. Now, some people misunderstand this. And they think that it's like a work salvation thing. Oh, if you do this for God, then he's obligated to do things for you. And that is not what this means. For example, um, as parents... We dangle a carrot out in front of our kids and say, hey, if you'll do certain things, we'll give you this. You can earn this. That is works. Uh, for example, I heard a story about a guy. And he had a teenage son. And his son said, Dad, I want, an, I want a car. You know, it doesn't have to be a new car. I, just, I want a car. He was about to turn 16. And his dad said, well, son, there are three things I want you to do. He said, first of all, I've been looking at your grades. You're making C's, and you're not a C student. You're not doing your work. I want you to bring those grades up. There are two, six weeks left. I want you to bring those grades up. He said, secondly, you're a Christian. I believe you're a follower of Jesus, but I don't ever see you reading your Bible. I don't ever see you doing a prayer time. I want you to have a quiet time every day. And third, you know, he had that haircut where his hair is kind of covering his eyes and it's kind of, kind of long hair, and he says, I want you to get a haircut. So the son says, okay. And... Uh, For the next couple of six weeks, he works real hard. And finally, the end of school comes. He says, Dad, I did what you asked me to do. This dad says, you know, son, I noticed that. We've had two six weeks. and the first six weeks, you brought everything up from a C to a B. And in the second six weeks, we even saw some A's. Good job. He said, second thing, son, I noticed is that you've been reading your Bible every morning while you ate your Cheerios. And I'm really proud of you for that. He said, but son, there is one thing that you haven't done. And that is you you hadn't gotten that haircut yet his son said, well, Dad, you know what? A funny thing happened. I was reading my Bible. And there are pictures in the back of my Bible. And I noticed that Jesus has long hair. His dad said, well, you know what, son? You're right. Jesus had long hair. But it is also true that Jesus walked everywhere he went. And so will you if you don't get that haircut. (laughs) Now, that is rewards-based. That that is a works-based reward. But that's not what what we mean when we say that God's going to give you something if you do something for God. Obedience has a blessing in and of itself. We talked about giving earlier, so it's true of giving. It is not true that if you give, God is obligated to make you a millionaire, or give you a new car, or give you a new house. That is not true. That's what some preachers preach. But Jesus said this, give and it will be given unto you. He also said this, That it is more blessed, there's a blessing, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The blessing is in the process. It's what happens in you. It's not what happens to you. So obedience is the pathway to blessing. Third, the humble sacrifice of Jesus. What Jesus does in this little model that I've drawn for you makes forgiveness possible. Your forgiveness and mine is only possible because of what Jesus has done. The Father sent His Son on a mission of mercy, knowing that He would die the cruelest death possible. What kind of Father would do that with His Son? One who loves you. Jesus voluntarily humbled Himself took on the form of a bondservant and died that cruel death. Why would Jesus do that? Because he loves you. He loves you. Maybe we don't say that enough. Maybe it's because it sounds too simple. But it's the most profound truth you could leave here knowing today. Jesus loves you. That's why he did it. But there's also a truth in this passage that is simply this. That he had to do it. Or there would be no forgiveness. And no salvation for you and for me. Listen to what the writer of the book of Hebrews said. Therefore he had to be made. Like his brethren. He had to. That's a moral imperative. There's no other way. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. So that he might be a merciful. And faithful high priest. In things pertaining to God. To make propitiation circle that word note taker it means atoning sacrifice the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people your forgiveness is only possible because Jesus chose to do this but because Jesus chose to do this your salvation is possible Because God exalted him and gave him the name above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. Your salvation, your forgiveness is possible because of this. But did you know? Did you know? I want you to consider this that you only receive that possibility of salvation if you do this at the right time. Look back at the text. How many knees are going to bow? All, every is the word there, but all is an acceptable answer, good. How many tongues are going to confess? All, every, yeah. That means every person ever born on this planet. The most hardcore, ardent Muslim fanatic in the world is someday going to bow their knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The most ardent, hardcore atheist in the world is someday going to bow their knee and confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. But salvation is a question of timing. Hear me out. If you bow your knee and you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, here's what the Bible says, that God has never turned anybody away who does that. If in this life, up until that moment of the last breath of your life, like that thief on the cross beside Jesus, up until the last breath of your life, if you do that, God has never turned anybody away. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But if you wait until you are standing before a great white throne and you realize the awesomeness of the glory of Jesus and you fall to your knees and you confess he really is Lord. I was wrong all my life. You spend an eternity separated from him in a horrible place called hell. That is what biblical Christians believe. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and for truth. We thank you, Father, for giving us this passage that is so packed with meaning. And now, Lord, I pray. I pray for those in this room, for those watching on television or on Facebook, for those who have never bowed their knee, humbled their heart, and confessed that Jesus is Lord, that today would be a day of salvation. God, would you do a work in us and among us. Help us to see the awesome, incredible work that Jesus did. That we might have the one and only way to spend an eternity with God. In Jesus' name, amen.